Let us pray. God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. You spoke this world into existence. Uh, let there be, and there was. It was so. We thank you uh, for this ordered world that you brought into existence and that uh, at the end of that, you brought us into existence as humanity to be in your image. Thank you that you've given us the gift of speech, that we can speak back to you in praise and worship and adoration. And we bring that this morning and proclaim that you are great. We bring our praise to you. We bring our thanksgiving to you, our adoration to you. You are indeed our God and we are your people. Father, we thank you that you uh, spoke again when uh, you sent Jesus into this world. You, you're one and only. Uh, and the world became, word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we praise you for that. And we pray, thank you for your uh, faithfulness to your word, to your promises that you had given and that you have uh, acted to fulfill them in sending your one and only into the world uh, to bring salvation, to bring forgiveness, to bring redemption. So we thank you for the gift of life that we have in him. And you're a God who continues to speak. You speak through your spirit. And we pray that your spirit would be active among us, uh, opening our hearts to hear your word, opening our ears to hear, opening uh, our minds to perceive and to understand uh, the wonders of your grace and of the new life to which you call us. Uh, may we indeed be responsive uh, to you uh, as we listen. And thank you that you've given us the gift of speech to one another. May our words to one another be seasoned with grace and with love for one another um, and with building one another up in faith, encouraging one another as we walk this pilgrimage of life together. Father, you know each one here and what sort of word they need to hear this morning and I pray that your spirit would uh, move among us all to hear the right word uh, those who need, hear, need a word of comfort to know the depths of your abounding love to us as expressed in Jesus and as you continue to express through your spirit. Those who need to hear a word of rebuke, a word of challenge, um, that we all would be responsive. Pray for Eugene as he will bring your word in a moment um, that you would speak through him and that we would uh, be empowered to listen. And Father, as we look around the world, we see um, great strife and turmoil, uh, much to make us anxious and nervous, uh, indeed fearful. Uh, ultimately, we know that uh, the affairs of the world are in your hands. We do pray that there would be peace. Pray for your people who are seeking to minister uh, in these areas where there is not peace. You would sustain them and hold them up. We pray for all those who have gone out from this congregation around the world uh, carrying your word, that you would uh, be mightily at work through them and sustain them and uphold them and uh, uh, speak mightily through them. So Father, here we are gathered as your people. We bring you our praise and our adoration with great thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain.
turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, preserve my life. Amen. Well, I know what you all are wondering, and the answer to that question is, no, I, I can't beat my wife in table tennis. It's just, I, I, our record is, I think I maybe won one time since our days at Gordon-Conwell um, of the maybe hundred that she's just destroyed me in, so pray for me. Um, well, uh, as we mentioned, as Bernard shared with us, in case you missed the explanation, um, the 119th Psalm, as promised, has already made two appearances in our service this morning, and we are actually scheduled to see it one more time before our service ends. And so the question you might be wondering, aside from table tennis, is did we run out of Psalms? And no, we did not. Um, so why are we spending so much time with Psalm 119? Well, again, as Bernard shared, this psalm uh, is an ode to the word of God. And each of the 176 verses in it express the psalmist's love for God's word, his commands, his laws, his truths, his promises. And that makes it the perfect psalm to take us into the second installment of our series on our PBCC family values. Having reminded ourselves last week of our overarching mission, knowing Jesus and making him known, we now turn our attention to the first way we pursue this mission, devotion to the word. What do we mean by devotion to the word? Well, to inspire our meditation on this value, I'd like for us once again to use the picture presented to us by the gospel writer Luke in the second chapter of the Acts of the Apostles. But before we return to Acts chapter 2, I'd like to share with you some illustrations made by my son, William. And yes, I got his permission. So here's a picture William drew of me and him for Father's Day two years ago. My favorite part is the colorful hearts. As for his depiction of us, they are exactly what you'd expect from someone who had just discovered what a stick figure is. So we have heads, arms, torsos and legs. No faces, but not bad for five years old, I would say. Here's another drawing William did of us a little while later. You can see a shift in his allocation of effort. The artist has eliminated all the colorful hearts save but one, but now our stick figures have many more details. Our legs have feet, our arms have hands, and our heads have eyes, ears, hair, and smiles. And the evolution continues in the last drawing I want to show. <laughs> the hearts are completely gone. William has replaced their symbology with a new level of realism. The hair is filled in with surprisingly lifelike strokes. The eyes now have pupils and eyebrows and framing them are my aviator style glasses. My nose is unflattering but accurate with its nostrils. And most impressively, William has managed to capture with a single line my Mona Lisa smile. <laughs> frown, Mona Lisa frown maybe. 
Now, why am I showing you these drawings? Well, I have these images posted on the walls of my office. You can go take a look if you want. And on my computer, I've been looking at them throughout my preparation for this morning. And I believe they show what it means to be devoted to the word. But you'll have to wait until the end of the sermon to see why. So let's go ahead and get on with it and return to the second chapter of Acts. The early church was born through the preaching of God's word by the apostles, as we saw last week. Amazed and perplexed by the sudden explosion of multilingual prophecy among the believers gathered in Jerusalem, onlookers asked for an explanation. What does this mean? And later, what shall we do? The apostles were ready and willing to answer their questions. After all, they had been directly commissioned by the risen Jesus Christ to do this very thing only 10 days before. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The apostles embraced their commission. They recognized that God intended to use them as he had used the prophets of the Old Testament to reveal himself to his people. As the apostle Peter later explained in the second letter we have from him, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter could claim this authority in part because he and the other apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus' ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. As he continued, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter and the other apostles declared the truth about Jesus on Pentecost, not as people reciting mere rumors they had heard, but as eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. And those who believed their message did what only made sense for them to do. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the first thing we learn about the early church. The new believers recognize the apostles' authority to speak on Jesus' behalf as his commissioned eyewitnesses, and they devoted themselves to their teaching. And so did many others in the following decades and across the Roman Empire. For example, the apostle Paul wrote this to the believers in Thessalonica, and we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Like the believers in Acts, the Thessalonian believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, recognizing it as the word of God. The early believers devoted themselves to it. The word translated by the New International Version as devoted means to continue to do something with intense effort or to persist in the adherence to a thing or to be intently engaged in something. 
But my favorite translation of this phrase is in the New American Standard Bible. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This captures not only the action, but the way it was being carried out. The original Greek word is a participle, meaning that this action characterized the believers in an ongoing, constant way. The people didn't just believe what the apostles were teaching, they continued believing. They continued learning from the apostles. They continued to hold on to their teaching. They did not let it go or give it up, even though there were plenty of reasons to do so. Let's refresh our memories on this point. In his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul remarked that Jews demand signs, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. By the first century, the people of Israel had already been waiting for the fulfillment of God's prophetically delivered promises for hundreds of years. They were looking for miracles. They were looking for deliverances. They were looking for acts of power that would prove to them that their liberation and restoration had finally come. And at the center of these miracles, deliverances, and acts of military might and political power, they would find the Messiah, crowned with glory and sword in hand. Under this assumption, under this belief, the vast majority of Jews simply could not accept a crucified Christ. It fit neither their interpretation of scripture nor the worldview framed by their interpretation. How could they accept a Messiah who was executed by the Romans, who had failed to launch his revolt? And how could they approve of family members or friends, fellow Jews who put their faith in him? Among the first believers were many who faced intense pressure and even persecution from other ethnic Jews. Much of the Acts of the Apostles tells us of this persecution by the Jewish community. But the gospel and those who believed in it didn't fare much better among non-Jews. Again, Paul, Greeks, that is Gentiles, non-Jews, they look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, foolishness to Gentiles. Whereas Jews sought powerful, victorious deliverances over their enemies, the Gentiles, generally speaking, sought wisdom. The broader Greco-Roman culture prized philosophy and honored its teachers, whether by pondering the physical or the metaphysical, the interior world of the soul or the exterior reality of the cosmos, ethical value systems or political frameworks for society, the Gentiles of the first century sought to become more and more sophisticated in their thinking. They didn't have time for stories as sentimental as that of a divine being loving his creation so much that he'd die for them so he could take them far, far away. A God who became a human to die for humans he made? Foolishness. Now it isn't that the Greco-Roman culture didn't believe in gods or that they engaged with humans. No, that was perfectly reasonable. And so was trying to secure well-being and success by appeasing the gods, gods who did not care for them enough to do something for them without getting something in return. It was perfectly reasonable to most Gentiles to try and manipulate the gods by offering the worship they desired. As the early church grew in the decades after Pentecost, more and more Gentiles became believers, leaving behind the gods they formerly worshiped 
And in doing so, they drew the ire of their friends and family members who thought their worship of the gods was perfectly reasonable. Their refusal to worship local and imperial deities was seen as a threat to public safety by their neighbors, and it incurred persecution from the government. So whether from the Jewish community or from the broader Greco-Roman culture, the early church felt pressure to give up the apostles' teachings and to discontinue their devotion to them. And as if that wasn't enough, the early believers encountered resistance to the apostles' teachings from within as well. Believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ did not instantly eliminate the sinful ways of thinking and speaking and living that they had engaged in before getting baptized. Though they were on the path to recovery, they were still scarred by the false narratives and destructive habits that previously dominated them. The record of the New Testament shows us that the early believers sometimes struggled to follow the apostles' teaching. But the New Testament also shows the church fighting to keep its hold on the apostles' teaching despite the opposition they encountered from without and within. They argued over it, they pondered it, they wrestled with it, they questioned it, they studied it, they set it to music, they wrote letters back and forth about it, and ultimately, they obeyed it, even when it was hard to do so. So, writing some 50 years after Pentecost, Luke really could say that the church was continually devoting itself to the apostles' teaching. The church was defined by devotion to the word. Now, brothers and sisters, can we say that about the church today? Can we say that about our church today? I ask this not presumptuously, not assuming an answer, but because this is too important a matter to leave to assumption. Are we devoted to the word? Are we continuously devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching and to the rest of God's word? A look at our list of connection groups on our website might be enough for some of us to answer positively. There are plenty of Bible studies on offer for people to join. And the sermon archive on our website listing the books the preaching staff has taught through over the years, it's really missing only one book, Leviticus. A perhaps forgivable blemish on an otherwise impressive record, there are many opportunities to study the Word of God at PBCC. After all, Bible is our middle-ish name. But perhaps there's a part of you that wonders whether having opportunities to study the Word of God is the same thing as being devoted to the Word of God, the way the early church was. If we were all enrolled in Bible studies, could we thereby say that we were truly devoted to the Word? The perhaps unsettling truth is that no, we couldn't. Not necessarily. Not automatically. Because devotion to the word isn't a matter of mere study, but of transformation. Devotion to the word isn't a matter of knowledge gained, but of lives changed. All the Bible study in the world isn't worth a thing if we don't put what we study into action. As one of the apostles, James, the brother of Jesus, warned the early church, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. 
Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. What was the point? But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Education without transformation is self-deception. Study without submission is self-deception. Knowledge without obedience is self-deception. We cannot say we know Jesus if we don't do what he says. As he himself asked the crowds, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Not to be clear, devotion to the word requires study to the word, of the word. How can we obey what we do not understand? But once we've understood the truth of God, obedience completes our devotion. The early church did not merely listen to and understand the apostles' teaching. They applied what they learned in ways that reshaped how they lived. To put it another way, the early church allowed themselves to be mastered by the word. They studied the word not to master it, but to be mastered by it. They studied in order to obey and so express their love for God and others. And to those who use their knowledge for any other purpose, Paul warned, we know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. And again, James, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. The only knowledge or wisdom that has value before God is that which bears the fruit of obedience and love for God and love for others. The goal of Bible study then is to understand it in order to be mastered by it. But sometimes we approach the word of God seeking to defend our own self-mastery. We may resent the idea that something outside of ourselves could have authority over us. So we approach God's word with suspicion and skepticism. Like a surgeon with scalpel in hand or a butcher armed with a cleaver, we dissect the word cutting away the parts we don't like and splitting the rest with a thousand rationalizations until all that's left is mincemeat and unbelief. But those who devote themselves to the word are willing to let the Holy Spirit turn the tables on them. The Holy Spirit is the surgeon, the scalpel is the word, and we are the ones on the table. As the author of Hebrews put it, with a slightly different but no less cutting metaphor, pun intended, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The church was born when people were cut to the heart by the word of God delivered through the apostles, and the church continued devoting herself to God's word, allowing the Holy Spirit to cut away the lies and falsehoods and untruths that necrotized their souls and spirits. The church surrendered to the Holy Spirit's scalpel as he exposed assumptions and beliefs that stymied their transformation and obedience. And even a cursory look at the apostles' letters to the churches in the New Testament shows that God's people brought many assumptions and beliefs with them into the church, and not all of them were good. 
The Roman believers were full of racism and ethnocentrism. The Corinthians were full of competition based on worldly measures of success. The Galatians were full of self-righteous, self-reliance. The Ephesians and Colossians were being seduced by false teaching. And the Philippians, well, the Philippians were pretty good. They were pretty good. But who could blame them? Who could blame them for feeling at times like God had abandoned them to their poverty and the persecution they were experiencing, perhaps more so than any other church in the New Testament? Every church had something they needed to be operated upon by the Holy Spirit with the scalpel of the word. And so do we. There is much we bring into the church that isn't of God. And some of these things are so deeply rooted in our hearts and minds that we even bring them to the word when we attempt to study it. You might remember this next bit from a sermon I delivered about a year ago. I find it no less relevant now than I believe it was then. When we come to the word of God, we don't come as blank canvases as much as we would like to believe. No, much of our canvases are already filled in with pre-existing assumptions and beliefs about what the Bible says. And these come from many and sometimes conflicting sources, our parents, our culture, previous teachers, or even just ourselves, consciously or unconsciously. And where they do not align with the word of God, our pre-existing assumptions and beliefs can keep us from receiving the truth. They can create blind spots that prevent us from seeing all there is to be seen in the Bible. But it's even worse than that. Our brains are designed to find patterns and to simplify what we perceive. If what we perceive can be squeezed into a pre-existing framework, a pre-existing perspective, that's what our brains will do every single time. So when we come to the Bible, our pre-existing perspective often takes priority over what we actually encounter in the Bible, causing us to see patterns and ideas that might not actually be there. We still receive some truth, to be sure, but the gaps in our understanding get filled in with the assumptions and beliefs that were already there. And we come away from, the, from God's word thinking that we've been affirmed by it. We mirror read the Bible. We look into it and we see what we want to see or we see what we are used to seeing. Then we go on with our days, virtually forgetting what we've seen because it's no different from what we always see, what we always think, what we always intend, assume, or believe. Author and speaker and too soon departed, Rachel Held Evans reflected deeply on this sobering reality. She said, if you are looking for verses with, for, with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you are looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. If you are looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you are looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you will find them. If you are looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. You are, if you are looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you are looking for an outdated, irrelevant, ancient text, you will find it. If you are looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. We all go to the text looking for something, and we all have a tendency to find it. And the great danger of finding exactly what we are unconsciously looking for is that we will be left utterly unchanged. 
Mirror reading God's word will never change you because mirror reading will never tell you something different from what you already believe, whether it is that God is angry and vengeful or that God doesn't care about the sins you indulge or that God could, in fact, love you with his whole heart. Mirror reading will never lead you to God. Rather, it will keep you trapped in your sinful assumptions and beliefs. So how do we prevent ourselves from mirror reading the Bible? Well, first of all, we can't prevent it. It's already happening to some degree at all times. We are broken people, and try as we might, we can't escape our brokenness, but we can mitigate the effects of our brokenness. One way we can do this is through a commitment to studying the Bible inductively. What is inductive Bible study? It's an approach to the Bible that seeks to gather and analyze any and all relevant data about a passage before deciding what the passage means. Instead of coming to the text with preconceived ideas about its meaning, we try our best to let the text speak for itself, one paragraph or stanza at a time, until we can connect those paragraphs and stanzas to one another and get an overall sense of what the text as a whole might mean. It doesn't matter if it's the first or the hundredth time we've read the passage, we try to set our assumptions and beliefs aside and let it speak to us afresh. The opposite of inductive study is deductive study, where you start with an idea or principle and go looking for passages from the Bible that seem to support your idea or principle. Okay, Eugene, so kind of like what you've done with the sermon. (laughs) Yes, pretty much. You might have already noticed that this hasn't been a purely inductive study of Acts 1, 41 to 42a. I mean, it's hard when it's like five words. I inductively derived an idea from those verses, sure, devotion to the word, but then I deductively looked for passages in the Bible that support or develop that idea. I hope that doesn't trouble you too much. I also hope that this can serve as an example of how not all deductive study is bad, especially if there is inductive study behind it. At PBCC, though, we try to make inductive study the primary way we approach the Word of God in most of our preaching and Bible studies. And to help us make sure it is, we have a second aid against mirror reading, communal accountability. We can study the Bible on our own, individually, privately, but it is essential that we also do it with one another. The purpose of this is not to ensure conformity, but to exercise constructive criticality. When we study together, we can help each other recognize our blind spots and counteract the false assumptions and beliefs we might be bringing to the Bible. Take this sermon, for example. Perhaps this sermon is bad. Perhaps I've twisted and misrepresented the the meanings of various passages. If that is the case, then I am relying on you especially those of you trained in the interpretation and teaching of God's word, Bernard Bryan, to hold me accountable. Tell me I'm wrong and show me why I'm wrong. Help me learn. As Rachel Held Evans put it, my interpretation can only be as inerrant as I am, and that's good to keep in mind. One of my deepest fears, just being honest with you all, is that someone now or 20 years from now will read a sermon I wrote and that they'll read it uncritically. That really scares me. 
because my word is not the word. My word is only my fallible, errant interpretation of the infallible, inerrant word of God. It is worthy. My words are worthy of every criticism. It should be strained. Every sermon should be strained through every reasonable filter to recover whatever grains of truth are buried underneath all of this. Now, this isn't to say that I don't believe what I preach. I do. God knows my sincerity. This is simply my plea to you as my friends, as my family, as my brothers and sisters, my plea that you never stop praying for me or for anyone else in a position to teach that we would be filled with the fear of the Lord and with the humility to recognize when we are wrong. Otherwise, just go ahead and throw us off a cliff with millstones tied around our necks. Whether we are preachers or private readers, our interpretation of God's word is only as inerrant as we are. So we need communal accountability. But it's not solely on others to tell us our blind spots, is it? We need to know the shape of our own brokenness, and that's the third way that we can grow against mere reading. We need to recognize what stands between us and God's word on a personal level. We need to understand the pre-existing assumptions and beliefs that we bring to the Bible. And if we are going to undo those assumptions and beliefs, we need to understand where they came from and what perpetuates them. In other words, we need to understand ourselves if we are to understand God's word. Again, Rachel Held Evans. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not what does it say, but what am I looking for? Because I'll find a way to make it say that. We must understand ourselves. If we are to understand God's word, we must understand ourselves. And this isn't something I'm bringing in from the mindfulness movement or pop psychology or Eastern religion or Western humanism. It was the Protestant reformer, John Calvin, who wrote in the Institutes of the Christian Religion almost 500 years ago that without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, he said, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. What he's saying is that the more we grow in self-understanding, the more we will grow in understanding of God. And this makes sense to us, doesn't it, on an experiential level. When I see my brokenness, I can appreciate the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God all the more. When I see my own unlovableness, I can see how grand God's love for me truly is. And I can recognize its heartbeat behind every passage of the Bible. As I understand my own brokenness and prejudices and perspectives, assumptions and beliefs, I can see, I can see more clearly where the Bible challenges them, defies them, seeks to cut them away. We must know ourselves, brothers and sisters, to know where our resistance to God's word stands and why it remains despite all we know of the truth. And so it's my humble suggestion that we make use of the psychological and therapeutic tools we have available to us to learn about ourselves so that we might remove every hindrance we can to the word of God in our hearts. Many of you know my own journey. You guys know my journey through therapy, 
my journey through mental health struggles. I had a breakdown in 2019 that I'm still recovering from. And if it weren't for some of these tools that were available to us outside of the church, there's no way that I would have seen God in the church. But God is using those things to grow me. He's using them to heal me and to come to the word with an open heart. Tools like the Enneagram can help us recognize our tendencies and how they influence the way we read God's word. I have two close friends who are Enneagram coaches and as they, whenever they lead Enneagram workshops, they remind their listeners that the purpose of these tools is not to put us in boxes, but to show us the boxes we're already in so that we can be free from them. It is for freedom that we do these things. And so we have at least three categories of tools at our disposal to aid us in our devotion to the word. But what if, after all that, what if we still don't get it? What if we're still mirror reading? What if we're still controlled by pre-existing thoughts, intentions, assumptions, and beliefs? How can I even be sure either way? How do I know what I don't know? Well, do you remember the drawings I showed you at the beginning of this sermon? Brothers and sisters, when William draws a picture of me, he is trying to remember every detail of my face. But he can only hold so many in his mind at once. He tries to put them on paper with his crayon or his pen or his marker, but his fingers can only cooperate so much. He has neither the capacity, the skill developed to know me perfectly or to represent me without error. But he has love. He loves me. And his love moves my heart so I can see past the mistakes. I can see past the missing features. I can overlook the fact that my nose is the way it is. I, <laughs> I can see the gift that he is trying to give me with the crayons and paper I gave him. I accept his drawings as expressions of love. And I really wonder if it is any different when God sees our attempts at understanding his word and living by it. I believe he receives my sermons the way I receive William's drawings. The angels might be tempted to roll their eyes, but God puts these sermons on the cosmic fridge of heaven, not because they are good, but because he is good. Not because I know him so well, but because he knows me so well. Not because I am holding on to him, but because he is holding on to me. You see, brothers and sisters, we are not saved by our rightness, but by God's righteousness. We are not saved by our understanding, but by God's compassion. We are not saved by our perfect knowledge, but by God's perfect grace, which we receive by totally depending on him to love us even when our drawings look nothing like him. In this way, our devotion to the word is unmasked as God's devotion to us. Do you see? And his devotion to us makes us want to be devoted to him even more, to devote ourselves to knowing him better, to capturing his indescribable goodness better, to showing him to the rest of the world better and better, using our lives as canvas and our obedience as paint. So brothers and sisters, let us plant our feet in this PBCC family value of devotion to the word. Let us continually be devoting ourselves to God's word. It delights his heart so. 
I'd like to invite the praise team together to return to the stage. And as they do, I want to invite you, brothers and sisters, to return with me to the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 119. In the final stanza of this psalm, we hear the writer's heart for the word of God. And I invite you, if you are willing, relying on God's devotion to us, I invite you to read this with me as the intention that we set for this year. May my cry come before you, Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. May my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. May my lips overflow with praise, for you teach me your decrees. May my tongue sing of your word, for all your commands are righteous. May your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, Lord, and your law gives me delight. Let me live that I may praise you, and may your law sustain me. I have strayed like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I have not forgotten your commands. Let's take some time and respond to the Lord. But now receive this word of benediction. As you go from this place, may God give you understanding according to his word. May God teach you all his decrees. May we choose his precepts. May we not forget his commands. May we be devoted to his word. Be well and be blessed. Amen.